You're listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Raj. Hey, Bob. Good to see you. Good to see you. Let me introduce us. I'm Robert Wright. This is the Non-Zero Podcast, and I'm the publisher of the Non-Zero Newsletter. And you are Rajan Menon, uh, political scientist. You have a lot of titles. I mean, first, I should say you and I uh, knew each other uh, as fellow fellows at the New America Foundation. Back when the New America Foundation was something of an anti-blob think tank, at least its foreign policy arm was, if you recall those days. That way. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't say that that still characterizes it, but we agree. everything is impermanent. Um, the, uh, so let me, so, so, uh, again, you're, you're Rajan Menon, uh, Raj to some of us, uh, among your titles is, uh, let's see, where, where should we start? Senior research fellow, Columbia University Saltzman Institute for War and Peace, professor emeritus at the City College of New York's Powell School of Public Policy. I guess that's named after Colin. Um, I, I guess most significantly now in terms of your time commitment, it sounds like it's probably that you're director of the Green Strategy Program at Defense Priorities. Correct. And uh, you are, are an author of some books. I mean, we're going we're gonna to talk about the Russia-Ukraine war. And, and back in the day, you wrote a book about the Soviet Union, I know. Um, what we're going to talk about is ways this war could end uh, and why maybe we shouldn't get our hopes up for it ending early. You published a piece not long ago in Tom Dispatch laying out some ways you you can imagine the war ending, uh, but then you've written an, another piece, co-authored a piece that I, I think hasn't been published, but which I've seen about why neither Ukraine nor Russia seems to be in any hurry to bring the war to an end. I mean, they'd both love to just win it outright, of course, but but that's not going to happen soon. And neither seems to be in a hurry for a political settlement. So why don't you start off uh, by telling us some of the ways the war could end? I, I think you had three basic ways that, Correct. broadly speaking, the war could end that you mentioned in the Tom Dispatch piece. Correct. So let me just run through them and indulge me for a moment because I know you know some of this, but maybe some folks in your audience. Take, take your would time. Find and it. in fact, I may, I may interrupt you and encourage you to slow down even. Sure. So let's start with before the war began. The Russians control Crimea, and about a third of the two provinces that constitute Donbass in Ukraine's east, Lugansk and Donetsk. Since then, they have made significant gains. They've taken all of Lugansk. They are driving to take the rest of Donetsk. Part of Donetsk is still under Ukrainian control. They've built a land bridge along the littoral, the shore of the Azov Sea to connect them to Crimea. They've taken a good portion of Zaporozhye province in the north, southeast, excuse me, and then part of the Black Sea coast. So they hold a substantial amount of real estate already. For those who think that the Russian war has failed, we have to bear in mind that they have much more real estate than they did. So one possibility would be for Putin who I personally don't see as a risk taker, despite the way he's been characterized, to say, I don't want to overextend myself. I want to learn from the failure of the northern drive toward Kiev. And I am going to declare the special operation over, throw the West into disunity, tell my troops to dig in, force the Ukrainians to come to my forces and expel them. They don't have the equipment for offensive warfare in sufficient numbers. And meanwhile, I will use standoff strikes to wreck as much of Ukraine as I can. I call that the partition scenario. So that, it sounds like it's not a true end to hostilities. If you think Russia would, they, they would quit taking more land in this scenario, but they would feel at liberty to strike Ukraine as they feel like it. Is that yes, in, right? In lots, in lots of places, which they can without regard to loss of civilian life. But the effect would be that they would say, our goal is a partition. They may not tell us, but that would be the goal. The second would be, and these are- Can, I, can I just press you on that a little? I mean, what would bring that to an end? I, I guess, would that qualify for the term frozen conflict? I mean, frozen conflicts don't really mean frozen, frozen. They don't mean yeah. the conflict ends, right? Yeah. They mean they're yeah. kind of simmering. The borders are fixed. 
But the hostilities go on. And in fact, there was a kind of a frozen conflict before the invasion in eastern Ukraine, the the boundary between the separatists held area and the rest of Ukraine. Um, So this would be kind of a frozen conflict. Presumably, Ukraine would retaliate uh, for the strikes, uh, but would be unable to actually take much of any ground in this scenario. So would this just go on like forever? You'd you call it partition, but we often think of partition as something that endures and brings peace. This would be a, a warm, a hot partition or something, it, right? It would endure in the following sense. The Russians would hold on to the above-mentioned real estate. They probably would pass some legislation or say some referenda to declare that it's now part of the Russian Federation, right? And they would then put... Ukraine in a difficult choice. Do we continue fighting despite the loss of life and the cost to our economy? Cost to our economy, World Bank uh, estimate is as high as 45% economic contraction. They have a budget deficit per year now of about $60 billion. So economically, they are under great pressure. The West, for its part, would have to figure out what do we do now? Do we up the ante? and pour in lots of offensive equipment into Ukraine so that they can actually push Russia out of dug-in territories. It would change the nature of the game. I'm not saying it would succeed, but I could see Russia doing that by saying, well, we'll settle for a half a loaf, quarter of a loaf, if you will, and not try to occupy Ukraine. Now, why? Because Ukraine and land area is a big country. It's the biggest, aside from Russia, in all of Europe. It's got 40 million plus people. So we're talking about... Um, a very outlandish ambition if you're trying to take and control most of it. And if you move further and further west, you come into more and more inhospitable terrain, which is to say predominantly ethnic Ukraine. So that's a partition scenario, right? Mm-hmm. Shall I go to the second? Uh, sure. So, so I, I, yeah, I guess I, yeah. Yeah, okay. go ahead. Uh, we can come back to these. So right. the second would be, these are in descending order of probability, by the way. The second would be, the Russians keep the gains that they have, but agree to give back some of the less critical ones in their view in exchange for an agreement on Ukrainian neutrality, which is to say Ukraine would be a non-bloc country. It would not host foreign military bases of any sort or permanently allow the stationing of weaponry from third parties, although they might agree that it would have the leeway to get training for soldiers and receive armaments from other countries. Now, this was, a, this was an option that many of us floated before the war. Right, right. And neither party on the Western and Ukrainian side was interested in doing this. So the question is, uh, is that feasible? I wouldn't put a high probability on it, but I would say it is feasible if the Russians make a calculation that the militarily the tide could turn against them, and economically the sanctions and the costs are biting them much more than they thought would be the case. Mm-hmm. That is the that is the neutrality option, but a truncated Ukraine in neutrality. Yeah, and it it assumes that Ukraine would accept the deal. We'll we'll come to that, yes. uh, but yeah. because that uh, your your more recent and and as yet unpublished piece uh, speaks to that. But uh, let me ask you in terms of what you think Russia might be willing to give away in exchange, I gather, both for neutrality and some sanctions relief, maybe not all, but critical sanctions relief. How much land do you think they conceivably might give away? I mean, the first thing that comes to mind, at least from Ukraine's point of view, is kind of Kherson. You know, there's there's some turf that is west of the Dnieper River. And, you know, future stability, if nothing else, would seem to call for making that river a kind of dividing line. Uh, It's also kind of problematic turf for Russia to hold compared to some of the other turf. Uh, And and so you might expect that. But, well, I guess we won't yet get into Ukrainian resistance to this idea. But I think I can guarantee you that that alone uh, at least in th- unless things change pretty dramatically, w- that alone certainly wouldn't convince Ukraine to say, OK, we'll be neutral. And plus, let's remove a lot of sanctions. Right. You so, know? so two things here, right? 
Uh, I'm not arguing that this would be a tough sell for Ukraine. Within Ukraine, it would be highly controversial. Right. And I'm not sure that Zelensky has either the inclination nor the political capital to pull this off. Things would have to get a whole lot worse. Now, what else might Russia give up in addition to Kherson? By the well, way, first, though, up- first, let me ask you what you think from Russia's point of view, uh, it might be willing to give up in exchange for neutrality, just theoretically, and substantial sanctions relief. So you mentioned Kherson. That's a possibility, providing there can be an assurance that the water canals flowing from Kherson to Crimea will no longer be blocaded. They would insist on that. Mm. Uh, As they have been since 2014 by by Ukraine. Correct. Think also of them peeling back gains in the Black Sea coast and maybe even giving Ukraine all of the Black Sea coast. Think of them possibly forfeiting the land they control in Zaporozhye. Donetsk, Land corridor, much harder to sell. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, comes back to your point, would Ukraine accept this? And my response would be, not until things get a hell of a lot worse. Mm-hmm. So what is your, before we get back to that, what is your third scenario for how this ends? Right. So the third one I wrote in response to people who have been talking about regime change, public protests, the end of Putin, and the collapse, not only of his government, but even of the Russian Federation as the pathway to a settlement. And some have argued that we ought to bring this about. Now, frankly, I think it's neither feasible uh, nor wise to do that. But let's assume for a moment that we were back in 1980, you and I, and somebody had said the Soviet Union would relinquish the countries of the Warsaw Pact without firing a shot, and then the Soviet Union would disintegrate without many people dying, I think people would have summoned the folks in the white coats and asked them to take you and me away. So I I wanted to address this, especially because a friend of mine, who is a very staunch uh, Ukrainian nationalist, has been writing about this. I won't mention his name. A democrat, If there is a transition to democracy, now when people talk about regime change, they're assuming A, a seamless transition, not a transition that creates havoc in the world's most nuclear armed country next to us. Mm -hmm. And they're assuming that the first order of business for a democratic government would be to forfeit all the gains made when it will have a huge number of other things to address. So that is hypothetically a third possibility. Mm -hmm. I think it's a long shot. I don't see any evidence that public protests or economic pressure or intra-elite disputes have reached the point where Putin's political position is in jeopardy, and I don't see any signs of the Russian Federation cracking up. So I think this is a different prospect, but I felt the obligation to address it because it's part of the debate. Okay, so one one scenario you're not laying out is what is uh, the official position of the Ukrainian government, which is they're going to kick the Russians out. Now, I think the official position includes Crimea in the kicking out, which is, of course, the least plausible and likely. But leave that aside. I take it you are deeming it more or less impossible that they could even kick Russia entirely out of uh, the rest of Ukraine, out of the the Donbass in particular, right? So the Kiev government's position has oscillated between the return to the status quo antebellum, that is the situation that existed before the February 24th invasion. Which would let uh, the, the separatist region remain in non-Ukrainian hands, in, in Russian hands, yeah, more or less. Yeah, about a third of Lugansk and Donetsk and Crimea, right. right? Right. The more ambitious one, which has also been voiced, is that we'll take everything back, including the statelets in the Donbass, as mm-hmm. well as all of Crimea. I think this is a long shot because while the Ukrainians have been quite successful in killing a lot of Russian troops, by the way, many more than died in the 10-year battle with the Afghan Mujahideen and destroying a lot of equipment, right? they've been parrying an armored and artillery assault. To move on the ground and seize territory, you need significant amounts of air power, better main battle tanks, infantry fighting vehicles. It's a different uh, animal altogether. And while systems like the HIMARS will help you, 
they don't in themselves take land, nor are they very useful as anti-personnel weapons. So that is why I think it, it, it will be a, it'll be a long, long shot. Finally, I don't believe short of a collapse or some catastrophe that Putin will end this war without going back home with some kind of prize that he can brandish to show that the special military operation has succeeded. He staked a huge amount on this. In fact, right. the entire government has. Dmitry Medvedev, who's seen as kind of a dove and liberal, is now one of the most hawkish people in the government. Right. So let's follow that thread a little. So uh, let's assume that that what is pretty entirely unrealistic is for Ukraine to move things back beyond where they were February 24th. But let's assume something you, you also don't think is very likely, which is that they could push things back to February 24th. Uh, and you're saying that politically for Putin, that would mean he has done all this for zero gain on the ground. And that is a politically unacceptable situation for him in terms of domestic politics. You know, people, I think, People often think of autocrats, as, of dictators, as, as people who don't have to worry about public opinion. And, you know, as you and I know, I mean, that's just not right. I mean, sometimes they are more worried than a democratically elected leader, precisely because they know that they're not really entirely yeah. legitimate, you know. Uh, and also, so, the kinds of people add... who rise to the top in those systems yep. tend to be kind of worriers, right? Yep. So, so, so you're saying uh, that's not acceptable to Putin. Okay, but suppose the military reality got him to that point, and let's imagine the Ukrainians accepted that. And, and I don't think that part's that implausible. Even though it's not officially their position, it would be a very major victory and be seen as such, and leaving Russia with no positive reinforcement for this whole adventure. Yep. And um, wh so what, in that scenario, what do you think Putin would resort to, okay? He's, he's, he's got his back against the wall. Yep. He has nuclear weapons. He has maybe some conventional weapons he hasn't yet deployed. I don't know. What, what do you think a Putin in that situation does? So this is a very good question. But before that, let me preface it by saying the following. In the piece that I sent you as yet unpublished, I think I cited a poll in which there is still substantial support for the war in Ukraine, despite all the death and destruction, and a high degree of confidence in on the part of the public. Sorry? In Russia, their supporter in Ukraine? No, or in oh, well, I'll come to Russia in a second. In Ukraine, right? Okay. So Zelensky is not under any pressure to settle, and the Ukrainians believe that if they don't fight on, their country will cease to exist. So they have a mm -hmm. high degree of uh, morale. Now, could this translate with ramped up Western weaponry into pushing, nearly pushing Russia out of everything? This war has had so many twists and turns that have made monkeys out of so many military analysts. Far be it from me to say, something is implausible. But the point you make is a very good one. To push Putin against the wall and to force him to retreat with no territorial gains raises the question of whether he will resort to nuclear weapons. Now, there are two arguments against this. Some people say, well, even suggesting that is just to give him leverage. But of course, that doesn't answer the question, which is, what are the risks? Second is some of the people who say, there's no danger of this. Simultaneously paint Putin as irrational, a madman, somebody who knows no bounds either. That's both contradictory and not very reassuring. So uh, okay. what, what do you think about, would can happen? I, can I, yeah, can I just add one other thing? Sure. So I was at a, at, at a, a, a well-known international conference, not Davos. I don't have that kind of star power, but if I told you the name, you'd recognize it. And there was a very, very senior serving military officer, and he posed a question. If we continue supplying more and more weaponry, which is more and more sophisticated, to the Ukrainians, and he wasn't arguing against it, he said, will there come a time when Russia concludes that it has to treat the United States as a co-belligerent? Something to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. How far are we prepared to go? How many risks is NATO prepared to take in following the US? Everything looks really good now. But add to that the economic blowback that the sanctions have created in the West. And you're looking at the possibility, at least, of creeping Ukrainian fatigue. We have to ask ourselves how much Main Street is willing to pay. On support for the war, let me say something that 
may get me into trouble. Let me say it anyway. There is an assumption here that Putin and a small group of people who surround him support the war. They have their own reasons for doing it, ideological and instrumental. But most of the Russian people do not. And if they say they do, it's because they've been blitzed by propaganda. Now, on the surface of it, that is a valid argument. But I think we need to ask ourselves a question that we haven't been willing to confront. Is there more support for this operation in Russia than we think there is and are prepared to admit? Yeah, and I think that leads to a kind of irony, which is that, in, in, I mean, first of all, in trying to amass public support for his war, one of Putin's biggest weapons is the perception that the U.S., is a de facto co-belligerent, that it's the entire West that is trying to threaten Russia's security. That's his basic line. Yeah. And he may to some extent believe it, who knows, but the point is, it's a public relations asset for him. And if you imagine scenarios where uh, you could you know, visit something approaching military defeat on him, those are probably scenarios in which the West has a more and more prominent role, at a minimum in terms of the, of the magnitude of the weaponry we're, we're giving them, right? So as, as he, he gets in more and more trouble militarily in this scenario, there could be more and more domestic support for him to continue the war because it's more and more obvious it's Russia versus the West, right? And or the argument that he has to resort to extreme measures may become more plausible. And then there's something else we haven't talked about. Could this, despite Russia's and America's desire not to have this happen, lead to an accidental spiral that right. escalates at a time when communication channels basically don't exist and the two sides demonize one another, right? Yeah. And so you can wind up with him resorting to some extreme measure that isn't the use of a nuclear weapon, but that sets in chain uh, something that leads to the use of, of nuclear weapon. You know, both sides go on nuclear alert. That means their right. decision chain is shorter. They have less time to decide things and blah, blah, blah. It can, it can happen. Well, let me walk you through one scenario. Putin's got his back against the wall. He doesn't want to use nuclear weapons, but he uses some elastic language suggesting that he is now going to up the ante significantly. NATO slash the U.S. and essentially the U.S. take some countermeasure that he views not as defensive, but as a preparation to preempt. Mm -hmm. He then takes countermeasures. Now, it wouldn't be the first time in history, as you well know, that we've seen this happen. So we may desire not to have an escalation. I don't think the Russians are looking for an escalation, but we could slip slide our way into one anyway. Mm. And just one more thing along these lines is another reaction he could have is, well, okay, my back's against the wall. That's a threat to me politically to have to have virtually nothing to show for this war. I need to keep fighting. I need public support for that. So maybe I should widen the war. Just make it overt that NATO, it's not a nuclear war, but NATO is fighting us now. I mean, I mean, it's not it's not crazy. It's less it's less crazy than using a nuke in a way. Yes. Uh, so anyway, it's it's. I guess we agree. There's kind of a black box there. So back to, um, so to move to your, I, I mean, you know, on balance, let's face it, your analysis is is not encouraging because you're, you're first of all, you're laying out the scenarios you think are most likely as ways for the war to end are ones that Ukraine, in its present frame of mind, would absolutely not welcome. Correct. Uh, and for that reason, you're saying they're not, in a way, they're not even that likely anyway, because because uh, Ukraine would not accept them. Now, I suppose the one scenario, the partition, it would be like, what's their choice? And that, in that scenario, Russia quits moving forward on the ground. Ukraine is incapable of pushing them back. And there's some tit for tat, uh, you know, right. firing. But there's another scenario, by the way, it's not really about how the war ends, but how it could get worse. Let's assume the reverse, not Putin with his back against the wall, but Zelensky with his back against the wall, where the Russians followed through on Lavrov's recent statement that the upshot of Western arms transfers has been 
that their agenda now extends far beyond Donbass, already beyond Donbass. And let's assume, and I'm not saying this is about to happen, but let's walk through hypotheticals, that we believe that Ukraine is on the verge of a catastrophic defeat because of the enormous support here and because in the political class and the commentariat, Putin is now seen as the devil incarnate, a threat to all of Europe, notwithstanding that he can't even handle Ukraine. What will we do? Will Mm -hmm. we urge a settlement? Why would Putin settle if he's on a roll? Or would we say we cannot, we cannot allow the Ukrainian state to collapse and we must Mm -hmm. somehow involve ourselves more directly? At that point, you're looking in effect at a a war between Russia and the West. Mm -hmm. I suspect that some of the NATO allies, especially France and Germany and Italy, wouldn't be very keen on that. Poland and the Baltic states may be, but they're the ones who are on the front line, really. So in terms of what seems currently like a very staunch Ukrainian support for the war, which I'm I'm sure in itself is real. I mean, they they were invaded. Their homeland is is threatened. It is real, Uh, no question. But the expressed uh, kind of refusal, popular refusal to settle for anything less than the complete expulsion of Russia from Ukrainian territory. And I guess the polls are phrased in a way where it may not be clear whether that includes Crimea, but leave that aside. If the Ukrainian people are saying they don't want to stop fighting until the Russians, you're not just back to February 24 lines, but but Ukrainian has uh, regained the territory that was held by separatists in the Donbass before that. Um, they must, there must be in Ukraine a much more optimistic vision of what is militarily plausible than you have, like by a long shot. No, by there a long is. Shot. So there is. So, so the poll that you mentioned does in fact follow up with a question. Do you think it's possible that the Ukrainian armed forces will regain Crimea and all of the Donbass, including what Russia occupied before February 24th? Surprise, surprise, the answer is yes. Now, there are two reasons for this. As you mentioned, I think the Ukrainians believe that this is do or die. And in a sense, I don't blame them for thinking that way. They face really a dire threat to their existence as a state. The other thing is that Western support has been so full-throated and so materially significant that they believe that the wind is at their back, correct? And that over time, they will prevail. And, you know, it's true. We could, we could give them more in the way of conventional weapons. I mean, one thing that, you know, we're taping this a few days before it'll air. But at the moment, one thing that seems partly responsible for what has been recently a lack of dramatic progress on the ground for Russia, after more considerable progress up to the point of taking all of Luhansk, um, one thing seems responsible for that may be these HIMAR missiles. Uh, you know, they have, uh, you know, they're, they've hit ammo depots, uh, command and control centers, and some, I guess, some anti-missile uh, posts the, uh, or anti-air uh, in- installations. The- it's, not, it's not just the HIMARS, right? So there have also been self-propelled howitzers, the French Caesar, the right. German Panzerhaubitzer, the U.S. M109, a Polish right. variant. So they've been souped up uh, quite a yeah. bit. And so this leads them to believe that time is actually on their side. Now, you can say they're wrong, Putin's wrong, but it doesn't matter what you or I think. It's what they think. Yeah. Well, one question is, though, I mean, it's true. We could escalate further with conventional weapons. Those HIMAR things can be equipped with, rather than six missiles that can go 40, 50 miles, one big missile that can go, I don't know, more than 100 miles. And, and that's precision. The, all of these are precision-guided missiles that can land yeah. within 10, 20, 30 feet of the target. And, and, and they're very big explosions. So you can imagine a scenario where once the Russians adjust to the, these HIMARS by moving their ammo depots back further, which will, you know, to some extent, enduringly complicate their, their logistics. On the other hand, the main... The major transition is a temporary one. They'll, they'll, they'll get that done and they'll, they'll move their ammo depots back. Um, you can imagine a scenario where, okay, now we're giving them the other kind of missiles 
and these ammo depots are going to get blown up and these command and control centers. So you you can imagine escalation. I mean, the, the biggest challenge in a way is manpower, right? I mean, Ukraine, ultimately, if both countries go to full mobilization, and I would say Ukraine is already close to there probably, but Russia isn't. And Russia has a lot more guys than Ukraine. So it seems to me that's Russia's kind of ace in the hole if Putin can sustain popular support is that, look, if you really want to go all out here, we will do either a general mobilization or a de facto general mobilization, and you'll just run out of people. And and I, I guess in your view, is it hard to imagine a scenario where they're not right? In other words, in terms of conventional weapons, there's just not enough we could realistically do that would compensate for the asymmetry in manpower. Yeah. So several things. Both sides face manpower pressure. They are sending to the front increasingly people beyond military age who are not well trained. Mm -hmm. There is a theory, which I have no evidence to support, but some military experts have said this, that the Russians are holding back their regular forces after the northern campaign failed. They're basically sending in the fighters from the two breakaway republics, Chechens, Wagner Group people, and so on, and they're about to unleash again the regular army. I can't speak to that because I don't have any evidence, and that would be pure speculation. One other thing, you mentioned giving them much longer-range systems. So the question is, to put pressure on Russia, will the Ukrainians say, look, we've been attacked. Mm -hmm. Why is their territory off limits? Yeah, yeah. There's a consensus here that that cap or limitation should be lifted, and the war begins to hit home right, right. in Russia. How will the Russians... Well, they could do that with, with these HIMARS. They could go 30, could. 40 miles into Russian territory. They clearly agreed not to, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and or, or, or else they, they deem it wise themselves not to. But, uh, but I guess the response would be, look, we could get that commitment, and you hope they keep it. Although, look, once somebody's back is against the wall, commitments have a way of vanishing. But but the thing on, on the manpower thing, the point I'd make is uh, leaving aside the question of how many good troops could Russia bring to the front lines now, in the long run, if they went for universal conscription and spent the whatever the minimal training time is, six weeks, two months, whatever they deem minimal, they can get, and, and Ukraine does the same, Russia can get a lot more men into this war than, than Ukraine, because Ukraine already has a pretty high percentage of its eligible population in the action. So the facts are clear that Russia simply has a larger pool to draw from. And as both sides start ramping up their pool and go to mass mobilization, yes, they'll be throwing troops that maybe are not as well trained as they should be and so on. But Russia has a lot more to bring to the fight. One other mm -hmm. thing, Ukraine has been facing constraints on ammunition. There's no sign that the Russians, despite all their problems, and by the way, the Russian military has displayed many problems, notwithstanding the great modernization drive Putin launched in 2008, the Russians are not running out of ammunition. There's no sign that that is a problem for them. And yeah. they are ramping up production in their military industry. So this is a war that I see nowhere near being resolved. And as you may recall in the piece that I sent you, although there have been calls on different grounds for ceasefire negotiations, neither side feels it's losing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a final thing on this point is that if we're imagining a scenario where Ukraine actually succeeds in what it wants to do, which is significantly roll back the Russian gains, and you imagine a future, which seems assured, where more and more of the fighting forces on both sides are not that well-trained, well, it's a lot easier for not well-trained soldiers to play defense than to play offense, right? So, yeah. so that's another advantage the Russians would have if the question is, can we roll back the aggression? Correct. So that melds with my partition scenario, right? Putin just says, you know, I'm not running out of manpower, but I'm running out of really good manpower. So let me draw a line and set up defensive positions and dig in that the Ukraine's been the fight to me. I'll respond with long-term, uh, long uh, long-range strikes and wreck as much of the Ukrainian economy as possible. There's an economic component to this as well, and we can talk about this. I think the, the effect of the sanctions on Russia, we 
we overestimate it, notwithstanding the history of sanctions that show that they're not very useful if, state, if states have decided to do something that they think is really important. And we certainly underestimated the blowback. Now, I'm not saying sanctions shouldn't have been applied because I think President uh, Biden had no choice but to apply them. He, couldn't, he had no other tools aside from aiding the Ukrainians militarily. But I think there's no evidence that the Russian economy is being brought to its knees. The Russians have earned more in energy revenues this year than last year, and they could turn up the heat on the West, especially Europe, with not that much cost to themselves, and they already have. There's sheer panic in Europe now about what the gas supply situation will be with respect to Russia. Mm-hmm. Um the uh, on, on the Ukraine side, in terms of their perception of the war and their current support for fairly ambitious military goals, um, I guess I have a couple of questions. One is, you know, we all know that Russia is a, is a pretty closed information environment. I mean, Putin, you know, very repress, increasingly repressive regime. They control TV more or less. They they pretty increasingly tightly govern the internet. Um, I think, uh, I'm not so sure about this, but I think Westerners may overestimate how open the Ukrainian information environment currently is. I was listening to a podcast, uh, and it was with a, a big supporter of Ukraine, a hawk, a kind of neocon-ish American who lives in Ukraine. And he said, frankly, since the war started, they have shut down every TV station, but one in Ukraine. And there's a rule on that station. You can't criticize President Zelensky, okay? It's not directly government-run, the station, but there are rules. And so I kind of wonder, uh, assuming that's true, maybe you know more about this subject than I do, but, uh, you know, I wonder, it seems like for the war to end, you you would like on both sides uh growing pessimism about the chances that they're reaching their maximalist aims. If your goal is for it to end, I understand there's some people who believe this was because this was an illegal invasion, clear violation of international law, which it was. You want to roll back the aggression, leave them with no positive reinforcement. I understand and respect that view. If if I thought you could do that without courting disaster, including possibly nuclear war, I'd be on more on board with it than I am. But anyway, I understand that point of view. But let's just assume that your goal is to acknowledge grudgingly that Russia's going to wind up with something. You'd like to bring the war to an end to, to minimize the human um, suffering. Uh, do, do you imagine a scenario where Ukrainian public opinion really approaches more what you consider realistic a- acceptance of realistic aspirations? I think we're a long way from there. But let me just segue to a point that you made that is worth talking about. There's no question both sides are trying to control the flow of information. That happens in war. We do it. Every country that's fought a war does it. Ukraine still, though, in defense of it, is a far more free country than Russia is, without question. They are skittish about talking about too many of their own losses fear of demoralizing the population and communicating to Russia that they are less determined to fight than they they uh, they let on so i think that the public has experienced the war full on you know let's remember that 12 to 13 million people in ukraine are either refugees or idps Hospitals, schools, clinics, churches have all been blown up. So this mm-hmm. war has come home to them in a way that it hasn't to Russia. So I think to say that there's support for the war simply because Zelensky is controlling information overestimates, uh, I mean, underestimates. Yeah, I'm certainly not suggesting that. There's natural strong support. I just wanted to make sure we talk this through. Yeah, I, I'm kind of wondering about the prospects for Ukrainians, if your belief is that they are not currently realistic about what's militarily doable, what are the prospects for them becoming more realistic? Well, the prospects for them becoming more realistic is further Russian advances well beyond Lugansk and, mm-hmm. uh, and Donetsk and well beyond the territories that they hold elsewhere. 
at that point, right, there is a decision both for the Ukrainians to make and for the United States to make. One other thing, we should not forget that there are some constraints operating on us insofar as weapon supplies are concerned. So let's take, for example, the uh, Javelin anti-tank missile, right? So the estimate is that we've given the Ukrainians about 7,000. We produce about 2,000 a year. And if you look across the board, you can only provide so many weapons mm-hmm. in a short time without drawing down your own readiness. And at some right. point, military, the military brass is going to be mindful of that, of that problem. So it is not a kind of a tap that once turned on, ha- draws from an, a well without limits. Right. And the chairman of the Joint Chiefs just the other day said, uh, you know, the American, uh, I guess, Mark Milley, uh, said, you know, people talk about how many HIMARS systems we're going to send them. That's not really necessarily the constraint. The, the constraint is the number of missiles we can afford to equip those systems with yeah. uh, before we draw down our own reserves to an unacceptable level from the point of view of our security. He said, we're being careful, but it's obviously not an infinite supply. And it's not easy to ramp up production of these things. It's not like, you know, you've got three car makers and you want more cars. That's a different scenario. These are, you know, each weapon system has one supply chain involved, you know, and so on. It's, uh, it's, it's complicated. There's Um, another thing, like there's, if you think of the array of weapons being supplied by different countries, they're not interoperable. They have different, maintenance and repair protocols. They require different sorts of training. So the idea that you just dump equipment in Ukraine and that somehow will level the playing field or tilt the playing field in favor of the Ukrainians misses all of the nuts and bolts realities of what warfare is all about. Now, that said, I don't see any sign of the weakening of Western support but it's early days in terms of the extent to which the economic blowback in Europe in particular and in the United mm-hmm. States will begin to have an effect on public perceptions of how much longer and to what degree the war should be supported. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it seems to me that your view kind of boils down to either Russia winds up with some amount of Ukrainian territory that was gained as a result of this, or the West and Ukraine resist to a point that considerably raises the chances of some kind of catastrophe. Is that? Yeah, well, raises the chances, certainly. I'm not in the prediction business, so I'm not going to say mm-hmm. it's a foregone conclusion, but I think it would be utter madness to think that Russia is facing the failure of the special operation, as Putin calls it, you're not allowed to call it a war, in which he stakes so much of his prestige that he's told the public that it's going to win, that there have been comprehensive sanctions imposed on on Russia, and then return home with maybe a nickel in his pocket. I just find that very implausible. Yeah. Um, So I I guess in, in a way, so if you... If you if you accepted your premises, which is kind of there's no happy ending, um, not yet. And 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 you 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 were kind of utilitarian about it, and you you said, well, on grounds of minimizing, you know, if our goal is to minimize human death and suffering, we would like to bring this thing to a, a, a close that is the best realistic close from a Western point of view. Yeah. In other words, leaves Russia with the least. Yeah. Uh, and it leaves it with the most unpleasantness as a result of the invasion, like in terms of some enduring sanctions or whatever. um, Still, if that was your goal, it sounds like it's hard to imagine that happening without the U.S. taking a heavy hand in steering things to that point. Because by your assessment, you're not going to get Ukraine, the Ukrainian people, anytime soon buying into that, even though you think if they had a more realistic assessment of the military prospects, they might grudgingly move there. They're not gonna. And so and go ahead. Let's talk about this for a second. What has happened is there's been a confluence in the United States of two streams of opinion on war that although they're philosophically and ideologically different, 
in terms of the U.S. role in the world, they're very similar in their outlook for different reasons. Mm-hmm. One is loosely called the neocon group, and the other is the liberal internationalists, right? So there hasn't been much of a debate in this country about the war, because to try to somehow explain how the war came about, why Putin is doing it, is idiotically seen as somehow blessing Putin's objectives or trying to defend what he's done. And I'm not doing that. Now, it's it's gotten worse. Just to drill down that, you're talking about raising questions about whether NATO expansion was wise, specifically the 2008 declaration that Ukraine would eventually be a member and on and on, maybe including some of the U.S. Uh, involvement in the in the 2014 revolution, up to and including Biden's not seeming to negotiate in in as uh, aggressive a manner as you might hope before the war and so on, and, and the supply, the ongoing supply of weapons, and kind of from Putin's point of view, de facto NATOization of Ukraine. That, just to summarize, is the set of explanations from the non neocons, non liberal internationalists that gets stigmatized as excusing Putin's. Invasion. Yeah. Right. So let me put it this way. I yeah. steered clear of Twitter until in my new job, it was seen as a job requirement. And I've, I'm two months, three months into it. In the age of Twitter, the kind of analysis that you're speaking about and that I just spoke about as well would be captured as blame America, defend Putin, or even right. worse, right. you're somehow on the payroll of Putin. Right. So the result has been there's no dialogue. If you look at the Washington Post, not to, not to mention the Wall Street Journal or even the New York Times, the articles of evidence that even raise these questions have been few and far between. I would say our media, our mainstream media, has by and large failed to serve the role of a national public square at a time when we've made a very important foreign policy commitment. So there is no debate on Ukraine. Those who take a different view compared to the administration's view are somehow seen as fringe elements have been relegated as such by calling them pro-Putin, anti-America, isolationist, whatever. Mm-hmm. And that's citing One other thing, Bob. Well, let so me let me interrupt and just say I've written about this a lot in my newsletter, the non-zero newsletter. I mean, the most recent piece is called uh, "Anti-War Think Tank Attack," but there's I, I I've. I've uh, I've gotten into this a lot because it's just a thing that you see in all kinds of different contexts. You're this apologist, you're that apologist. It ultimately, you know, goes back at least as far as Joseph McCarthy uh, in in the fifties um, as as a tactic for inhibiting debate. But but go ahead. Correct, and I, I would say social media, which back in the day was thought to be good in terms of creating a universe, an epistemic, epistemically productive universe, has been a baleful influence by and large. But the problem is not just what the blowback that I and others may feel. You know, I'm a big boy, I can take it. It's something else. The administration now would be hard-pressed right, right. to push the Ukrainians to make a compromise for at least two reasons. One, as Reinhold Niebuhr would not be surprised to learn, this has now been painted as a conflict in good and evil, mm-hmm. the global international order supported by the United States Everything is on the line and no compromise is possible. The other is that the Biden administration's narrative on this has put it in a difficult position such that to say that the Ukrainians should cut a deal would be rank heresy. Finally, our position has become that the question of whether there are negotiations and what are the objectives of those negotiations are entirely in Ukraine's hands. We leave it to them, notwithstanding that we are right. underwriting uh, the war, which strikes me as a little odd in terms of purely an American yeah. strategy. Yeah. Let me say uh, quickly, I, uh, I have a, a, a question about that. But first, uh, you know, I do kind of think there's a sense in which I do think this is kind of good and evil in the sense that I believe international law is very important. You should respect it. The problem with saying that it's critical that we uphold this norm of complying with international law, which I would love to uphold, is we ourselves have undermined it so thoroughly that we aren't at a moment where either the norm rises or falls. The norm is in a state of extreme disrepair because we disregard it all the time. 
our troops in Syria violate international law at the moment, leaving aside Iraq and a lot of other things. And so I, I just want to emphasize that, you know, when you say things like that, it's like, oh, that's what about ism. You're excusing Putin. I'm not excusing Putin. I, I, or moral equivalents. Yeah, yeah, or moral equivalence or this or that. No, my point is we have helped put the world in a situation where uh, reversing Russian the Russian aggression entirely would not restore the state of the norm of complying with this uh, the international law about transborder aggression to some kind of pristine and strong condition. Because for one thing, most of the world views this very cynically. Because we I, have ourselves say, violated that norm. Can I say a quick word about this? I, I wrote a piece along with a colleague about uh, on this in Politico. And what I said was basically this. There is great disappointment here that this has become a U.S.-American-backed war. Yeah. And that the narrative about roles, uh, rules of the road and the global order have not sunk deep roots elsewhere. It is precisely for the reasons you mentioned. Think after 9-11, the violation of the Convention Against Torture, the violation of the Geneva Conventions, a preventive war, not a preemptive one, a preventive war against Iraq. The Kosovo- That violated international law, even according okay. to the Secretary General of the right. UN. So Go it ahead. doesn't mean that Russia and the United States are the same country. It means that you can't have it both ways to appeal to global norms and choose to bend mm -hmm. or violate them when you feel like and in the global south if i can use that term which i don't much like this view is very strongly held which right. is why a country like india for example has refused uh, to uh, has refused to condemn russia or not uh, applied sanctions is to write it off as simply well they're just pro-russian i think this is much too simple that's my point others right that's part of my point is that in much of the world Rolling back Russian aggression entirely would not be viewed of, as upholding the norm. It would be viewed as an American victory in a proxy war. And, 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 and I'm just saying that that fact should figure into our cost-benefit analysis when we ask, well, what, is the, what risks are we taking in rolling back Russian aggression entirely? What do we get out of it? Well, less than we would get if we had ourselves respected international law. That's my point. Um, and uh, again, you, neither you nor I approves of the invasion. I, I can't speak for you. I condemn it wholeheartedly. I'd like to do everything I can to minimize any positive reinforcement Putin winds up with, but you have to you have to gauge that accurately. I agree with you. Just, just let me make my own position clear. I was a critic of NATO expansion from day one. Uh -huh. I think it set the context for this war, although it did not cause it, was not the only cause. But despite my sympathy for how Russia viewed NATO expansion, I don't think the war against Ukraine was taken against a clear and present danger. And my position has right. always been that if the left, progressives, restraint people, whatever you call it, were against the war in Iraq, you have to at least acknowledge that this war is like that war. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about all the other things that you right. and I have talked about. No, I, I agree. I mean, if I understand you correctly, when the, when the invasion first happened, some of my anti-war friends were like, oh, my God, we're supporting this just like we supported the Iraq invasion. I said, wait a second. <laughs> These are, I mean, the Iraq invasion was an illegal invasion by us. That was completely indefensible. At least grant that in this case, the pro-war people are supporting opposition to an illegal invasion. OK, so I think we're. You're, you're agreeing on that, right? Has Ukraine been invaded by Russia and is Russia annexing large parts of Ukraine and trying to maybe put the whole country out of business? Absolutely. I mean, it would be mm. obtuse to think otherwise. Yeah. So uh, back to that question, you mentioned that uh, Biden, uh, the, the Biden administration says, hey, whatever Ukraine wants. Now, I'm not sure how seriously you take that on the one hand, because I assume when we do, if, if it gets to the point where we're applying some leverage and we're saying, look, no more HIMARS or whatever, you know, where there's a limit to what we can do, you're going to have to settle for leaving Russia with this much territory. That's what we're going to aim for at the peace talks. You got to be on board. We just, you know, we, we, we're not going to keep amping up the weapons we're supplying, whatever. If you assume that the Biden administration was going to get to that point, They'd probably still be trying to depict it 
as having the support of the Ukrainian government. In fact, that would be part of what they'd ask the Ukrainian government to, to do is say, yeah, we you know evolved and so on. So do you take, I mean, do you believe that this reflects that there's this genuine view in the Biden administration, which would be almost new in the, in the annals of great power politics, right? To, to like really exert no pressure on, you know, uh, uh, well, they wouldn't call it a proxy state, but let, let's face it, it's an ally of, of uh, in terms of power, subordinate status at a minimum. Great powers generally apply leverage to those. Do you really think the Biden administration like has no plans to apply leverage ever? Well, you know, I'm not privy to what goes on in the Biden administration, neither are you, but my my surmise based on, based on what I hear them say and do is they believe that Western arms supplies combined with the attempt to isolate Russia politically and the sanctions will eventually turn the tide and the rethinking about concessions on the Ukrainian side will not occur until such time as they are proven wrong. But here's the problem with that logic. If they're proven wrong, Russia will take even more territory and then you will be pushing Ukraine to make an even bigger compromise. Right which is even harder to sell. But then the question is, you know, what is the alternative? It's it's sort of like what Maurice Chevalier, I think, was asked when he was 90 years old or whatever. How does it feel to be so old? And he said, well, considering the alternative is pretty damn good. Right. So the question is, um, you would find yourself in a position of having to push the Ukrainians to make and accept a lot of concessions. And the ground there has not shifted, in my view, to the point where people are ready to do that. Now, if they felt that they'd lose everything without settling, well, everybody has its price. And the right. idea that companies won't sign compromises is just absurd. But you'd hate things to get to the point where they had to reckon with, with the complete loss of their country. Also, I gotta say right now, it looks like the Russians are not advancing very, very no. fast. It's not gonna happen sure. anytime soon that Ukraine thinks, oh my God, the whole country is threatened. If you look at the balance of power versus the balance of morale, morale is part of the balance of power, of course. The Ukrainians have undertaken at the front enormous sacrifices. Now, for example, towns in Lugansk, right, like Severodonetsk or Lizichansk, they could have withdrawn from tactically. They stood there and fought, and at one point were losing, by their own account, 200 to 300 soldiers a day. Right. You have to give them credit and recognize that for them, this is do or die. There's no morale problem that I can see. But see, this is uh, one reason I just have trouble. Like one of your scenarios involved uh, both your end-of-war scenarios involved both Russia holding on to quite a bit of territory and Ukraine guaranteeing neutrality. I just have trouble imagining that. I, I, have, I have trouble imagining Ukraine doing it uh, in any likely scenario. I don't know. You're right to be skeptical, right? The question is, can one think about ways in which it could end? And this would be my menu for you to choose from. Am I saying that each dish is superlatively cooked and you should choose with abandon? No. But at some point, you know, this war will end. The question is, how will it end? So at this point, I see those as a range of possibility. Do I predict with high confidence that one or two or three is likely to happen? No, absolutely not. I have no idea. And, so and by the way, if anybody tells you that they know how the war is going to end, it's your choice. But you probably shouldn't want to have them on the show because yeah. they need to wallet because nobody, nobody knows. So maybe the final question is, uh, we've talked about how the calculation could or couldn't change on the Ukrainian side. Your, your scenarios for uh, ends of war seem to presuppose that the calculation won't change a lot on the Russian side, unless, of course, they start losing a lot of ground, which, given how hard it is to play offense with a depleted force, it's not that easy to imagine Ukraine pushing them back super, super far. But in any event, I, I, the question I'm going to ask is, do we know enough about Russia? I mean, Russia seems to me, of course, I'm not a Russian scholar of Russia, seems to me kind of opaque more opaque than, than Ukraine in a way, although there are certainly questions in, in, uh, about Ukraine and, and mysteries I'd like to see unraveled, but Russia seems pretty opaque. Do we know enough about uh, 
well, a Putin. I, I I think we have actually a fair amount of data on Putin, but, but uh, we we've watched him for a couple of decades as a leader. But do we know enough about his political and information environment? Uh, right, uh, and and the nature of the pressures he's he's under to really say very much about what he might or might not accept in the long run. Not enough to make very big claims, but let me just say I, I listened today to. Bill Burns addressed this question, and I agree with what he said. He said, by training and temperament and philosophical outlook, Putin is a nationalist. He's not a sentimentalist. And he believes that it is, is in his hands to make Russia a great power again and to push back what he sees are hostile Russian policies. And he believes that he cannot allow Ukraine to drift into the Western camp. Now, I'm not endorsing any of that, but I think Burns has got it exactly right. As to what kind of pressure is he in, you know, I've often wondered whether there is a Xi Jinping kind of syndrome going on here. And I refer to the, the, the significant losses of fighting COVID with a lockdown and not using Western mRNA vaccines and all of this. Is anybody prepared to go to him and say, we are failing? Mm-hmm. This is not going well. This will end bad. Or is, mu- is it much easier to tell the boss what he wants to hear? Even mm-hmm. in democracies, so-called groupthink is extremely common. Think of the book that Irving Janus wrote about groupthink in the United right. States, looking right. at case study. So there's that question, right? And it's probably much greater in a country where going in and telling the supreme leader he's wrong could have really catastrophic yeah. consequences, unless you're sure that others will join you. You, do you want to be the first guy and find out that you're the only guy? Well, it seems that there clearly was groupthink at work before the war. Uh, at the same time, there there has been some adaptation to the realities about what worked and what didn't work. And, and what is adapting? Even HIMARS, you know, people are looking at it mm-hmm. as a magic bullet. Are we saying that the Russians eventually will not adapt to that? Uh, it remains to be seen. It's early days on that on those, yeah. on those weapons. Final question. Uh, let, let's but let's assume they don't they don't adapt well enough to take uh, the remaining part of Donetsk. OK, now I, I have this view of Putin where. The taking of all of Donetsk is a super important milestone for him, because remember, at the outset, his professed aims were at a minimum. We have these two republics, Donetsk, Luhansk. I think he meant their full extent not just the parts that were then separate as held. We are respecting their independence. So in a certain sense, the minimal expressed war aims are to secure control of Donetsk, Luhansk, take them out of the hands of Ukraine. They've pretty much done that with Luhansk. Donetsk, they got a ways to go. And I, I mean, who knows? It could happen in a few weeks if, if, if the dam breaks or something. You never know in war because they're not that far away in terms of miles to the two big remaining cities. But but uh, but it seems like the Ukrainians are pretty well dug in for now. The you know the Russians uh, seem not on their heels, but not to have a lot of wind at their backs. Can you? How hard would it be for Putin to accept a deal where he was not fully in control of those two provinces to stop shy of the conquest of all of Donetsk? Well, let me say the following, you know, I've stopped paying attention to numbers that either side puts out about how many of the enemy have been killed, how many tanks have been lost, because I just can't reconcile the numbers. What I can do is to see where the battle lines are moving day by day. The battle lines are moving very slowly in Donbass. You rightly point out, can they take the rest of Donetsk? This will be a big test. Most of my friends in the realist camp, and I loosely belong to that camp, believe that Ukraine will lose the war that it is a complete case of folly to believe anything otherwise. I'm not entirely sure because this war has proven me wrong on more than one occasion, but Donetsk will be the test. Will they lock up all of Donbass by sweeping through Donetsk or grinding their way through Donetsk in, say, the next two or three weeks? I would say the next two or three weeks will tell us a lot about uh, what is the potency of the Russian army. And if it proves to be a failure or just an incredibly costly campaign, will that lead Putin to recalculate? And then we bring 
to on the table the partition scenario? Does it in some sense become viable for them to propose it? Not right. necessarily have it be accepted. Well, and at that point, does the Biden administration say maybe it's time to uh, use a little leverage and start talking about bringing this to a close? You know, kind of recognizing that Putin has now got these two big prizes and might be willing to sacrifice a lot of other things for what he I wants in terms of sanctions. They might say the failure of Russia to taste the, take the rest of Donetsk shows that our policy is working. Oh, yeah, right. I can imagine that. If they don't, if Russia doesn't, doesn't yeah. take Donetsk, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. Okay, so afraid we can't close on a note of optimism and inspiration, at least if, if you're hoping for an early end of the war, but one thing about war is it's unpredictable. Uh, so thank you so much, Raj. Where can people, you mentioned that you're now, uh, it sounds like maybe grudgingly on, on Twitter, but on Twitter, what's your Twitter handle? It's Rajan, R-A-J-A-N underscore Menon, M-E-N-O-N underscore. Okay. And any books more recent than the book, the Soviet book I alluded to? Yeah, I just wrote a book a few years ago called The Conceit of Humanitarian Intervention. It was looking at the whole R2P enterprise, the record of humanitarian intervention, and arguing that it was a lot more complicated, had a lot that support, and led to many more unforeseen consequences. And I would say Libya has largely proven me right, right. on that one. I'm writing a book, although the, the, the war has hijacked my life, with uh, Eugene Rumer, the Carnegie Endowment, called Russia after Putin. Uh, so there, wow. there, are, there are things. There are things in the works, but I've been my, primarily writing long-form essays and 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 op-eds that people can find in various places like the Guardian, the LA Times, uh, Politico. Okay, was- so they should Google you and maybe buy your books as well and follow you on Twitter. And I on Twitter and Robert Writer W R I G H T E R, and I've written about some of this stuff in the Non-Zero Newsletter. And thanks uh, everybody, and thank you, Raj. This has been very illuminating. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Mark. It's been fun. Good to see you again. Same here.